This is Seeing Red, the New York Soccer Roundup on Backheel.com with your hosts, Mark Fishkin, Dave Martinez, and Dan Dickinson. It's Seeing Red, the New York Soccer Roundup. For the 14th straight visit, the Red Bulls go to Chicago and come back with nothing. Tonight on Seeing Red, we'll break down the 3-2 loss at Chicago. Uh, we'll preview DC United this weekend with Pablo Maurer. Uh, we'll talk Bo on Cal, and we'll get to your emails and phone calls. Uh, all that and probably much less. Uh, Dave, how are you tonight? Doing well. Glad to have Voltron back in full swing here on Seeing Red. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. Uh, you know, it's really good that, that we're available for these shows on such a regular basis. Absolutely. So, let's start with Chicago. Uh, you know, a lot of expectations high. This was one of those games in hand that the team was uh, looking to cash in. And for the first 20 minutes, they looked pretty good. What did you think? Yeah, it felt like one of those classic trap games as the, as the night wore on. But, uh, you know, a game that they would think that you'd be able to get three points from, if not just manage a result there in the draw. But you saw how difficult a team Chicago can be, even though they're at the bottom of the table. They have a lot of indi- individual talent, as Luis Robles and Sasha Kleschen said post-game. You know, you saw the likes of Patrick Niarco, David Akam, and Kennedy Igbanonike who was absolutely electric on the night and really tore them apart with their pace. And you saw the result. They just were able to you know, pull the defense apart and took advantage in every way. I think Sasha described Chicago as a team with their backs to the wall. And I think that that's a pretty accurate description of uh, you know, where Chicago is with their season and never mind the sort of fan revolt and uh, demands that ownership change, which certainly doesn't sound familiar at all. So in you know, a 10th minute... New York takes an early lead, a penalty drawn by Miazga uh, via sort of sloppy tackle on a corner kick via uh, Jeff Morenowitz. Sasha Kleschen with a nice conversion. And then in the 22nd minute, we have this uh, turnover from Mike Rella. And what happened there? Yeah, not, not the best game overall for Mike, uh, for being honest. Uh, not the best ball into him to begin with. I believe it was Felipe that played it to him. Uh, he coughed it over right around the midfield circle. And from there on, it was just uh, off to the races on the counter. And you never want to give a ball away in that area. Uh, they were thin at the back. And they just got exploited very quickly on the counter, which is something they've had some trouble with at times this year. You look at the matches against Philadelphia in particular to see just how poor they've been against the counter. And they were exploited on that movement there. So uh, something they need to shore up on. They mentioned that they will be taking close note of how they conceded goals against Chicago as this was the first of their three meetings on the year and with 10 games to go. Two of those games will be against the Fire, so definitely something to look into for uh, their upcoming matchups. Now, Dave, how much do you think that this might have been contributed to by the fact that we finally saw Ronald Zubar play a full 90 again? Yes, yeah, his first MLS action since, I believe, June 28th, so a bit of a refamiliarization process with the back line. I know they've talked a lot about how they've interchanged pieces back and forth to try to make sure everyone is comfortable uh, with one another in the back line, but adding in a big piece like that in the center of the defense, uh, it's, it's always going to cause some kind of issue in terms of uh, you know, cohesiveness in that back line because the, the combination of Perinello and Miazga has been so solid for the majority of 2015 when they've been together. And adding in Zubar, who was meant to be uh, you know, the rock in defense, the replacement for Hamas and Olave, hasn't really panned out, mostly due to his various injuries and setbacks you know, time after time. But... Overall, I thought he had an okay game, a bit of a mixed bag, and I think that was definitely a contributing factor, maybe a little bit of unfamiliarity with his center back partner with Luis Robles. So a bit of an adjustment period. Let's see if uh, 
he gets the nod again on Sunday, and if uh, that familiarity will you know, reap its rewards. Robles, uh, speaking of which, had six saves on the night and perhaps kept the scoreline from getting uh, even more ridiculous, including a pretty ridiculous uh, save in the 28th minute. Just before half, Michael Stevens just the ball to Patrick Nyarko, and it's 2-1, rather deflating to, to go in at the half like that. And then just on the other side of halftime, I, I think we saw what might have been the most controversial goal in the last few years of MLS. What, what happened there? That was an interesting one. I, to be honest, I couldn't even tell you exactly what happened. I believe from the many replays I saw, Lloyd Sam went over, uh, touched the ball a couple times uh, as if to be setting it up for the corner kick. Uh, but he he mentioned something to the assistant ref who was in the corner, and Sasha came over to take the you know take the corner kick presumably, and then began to just dribble it out. And uh, they had no problem with it. They let the play go on. Walks into the 18, plays it to Zubar nicely for a one-time finish, and that leveled the score at the moment. But uh, if you were listening to the broadcast on MSG, you heard that Steve Cangelosi was reporting that Pro, the you know professional referees uh, association that called in and said that that goal should not have stood, that there was uh, a problem with the way that that you know, procedure had gone down in terms of the ball needing to cross the arc or a, a one circumference having to have been turned over the ball. I'm not exactly sure of the phrasing there, but all in all, I believe that the, the verdict was that that goal should not have counted, but at the end of the day, it was good enough for the equalizer at the time. You know, I've seen so many armchair referee interpretations of the laws of the game since that incident happened, you know, I, I've seen people dismiss the the ball having to turn once because that was removed from the rule book back in the '70s, I think, or maybe maybe somewhat later than that. But it's it's not there. There's nothing in there about it having to leave the. I think the the place that the uh, controversy is at the, at the number of times that Lloyd Sam touched the ball, and if if one of them was settling versus putting the ball into play. And the the whistle seemed to have been blowing a lot when I was watching the replays. So it, it was certainly confounding. I can't recall MLS ever interrupting a broadcast, MLS or Pro, um, to indicate that a referee had made a incorrect call. And, uh, you know, if they're going to set that as the standard, I look forward to MLS broadcast because they're just going to be calling every five minutes at the rate they're going. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very weird standard to set. Definitely interesting, I'd say, but... The one thing I would say in terms of why they would – I'm not sure really why they'd interrupt a broadcast for that, but I can see why it would be different than, say, uh, you know, a missed penalty call on, on a dive as opposed to a legitimate foul or a missed offside where this wasn't a judgment call, as you would think. This was more of a misinterpretation of the rule, and I think maybe they were looking to clarify that, but still a little bit odd to see that you know, interrupting in the middle of the game and having the commentators address it. Well, and, and in fairness, you know, thinking back to the Chicago uh, game at Red Bull Arena last year that, that led off with that Mike McGee questionable not offside call, which I don't even think it was a he's not offside. It was a misapplication of the, well, depending on which side you're looking at this, might have been misinterpreting the, the way that the offside rule was written at the time. But, you know, that, that's the way the sport is. And, and so it goes. So it was equal for... You know, a solid 25 minutes, but uh, New York did not look great. And in the 73rd, the defense got pulled apart again. And Ibogdanaiki, which I'm going to completely butcher every time <laughs> I say it, uh, gets his brace. And we, we end 3-2. So uh, the stats were not kind to the Red Bulls. They were outshot 17-9, to only two shots on target. And amusingly, both of them went in. 
the passing just wasn't connecting. They were doing 60% in the attacking half and only 54% in the final third. Um, it, it was just generally not good. So on a night where the players largely don't show up, who, who's your bull? Well, you look at the game as a whole, and uh, I guess the easy choice there, well, I, I picked him for you know, my cow last week, so I'll, I'll give him the bull this week, would be Sasha Kleschen with the goal, with the assist. Uh, he looked to be in good form on the, on the day. And after you know, the Toronto match where he admitted that he had been you know, tired and worn out, I guess the, the layoff where they had a week off did him good, got back into the flow of things and you know, scored the penalty, which you'd expect him to do, created the goal off a corner kick. So you get a goal and an assist, you, you get the goal for me. It's a safe choice. I'm going to give mine to Luis Robles. Um, you know, a couple of the goals, he looked a little flat-footed and out of position, but you know, a lot of those saves he made kept this team in the game. And without him anchoring back there, this could have been a lot uglier. It would have looked more like uh, the Toronto-Orlando game from last weekend. Um, so I'm going to give it to Robles. And a cow, sir? Cow, it's, that's tough because for all the wrong reasons for Red Bulls fans, because there were a lot of poor performances in the night. Uh, I think I'm going to give mine to Mike Grella just because he just looked out of it from from the onset. I mean, in, in fairness, the entire attack looked pretty disjointed, but in particular, when you look at that, the first goal they conceded on that turnover at midfield, that was a really a backbreaker. And he really just didn't create enough from the wing. He didn't look dangerous on the night. And for me, it, it was kind of just a flat performance. And so I got to give him my cow. Uh, I, I can see that. And, you know, it, it's tough on Mike because he's got Verone breathing down his neck and Sean Ryan Phillips for, for that spot on the wing. And if he's not going to keep performing, there are people ready to slot in and uh, take that starting spot. So Mike Grella, sorry, buddy. Uh, the team seemed pretty consistent in their messaging after the match. It was looking forward to D.C. So let's look forward to D.C. Uh, D.C. United has 13 wins, 9 losses, 5 draws, and a plus 4 goal differential. Uh, they meet the Red Bulls in Heineken Rivalry Week for the second time this year. The, the second Rivalry Week, not the second time they're meeting during Rivalry Week. Uh, it was NYCFC before. In their last six, they have three wins and three losses, including most recently a loss to the blue team on the road, 3-1, and a loss to San Jose, really surprisingly, 2-0 at home. Uh, the last time they met the Red Bulls, it was a come-from-behind draw for the Red Bulls at RFK, ending 2-2. Uh, I believe it was goals from Damian Perinell and Lloyd Sam with that little dink past uh, Bill Hamid at the end. And that didn't come very long after the 2 nothing win for the Red Bulls in what I believe was their home opener back in March, which uh, D.C. looked completely awful during that game. Chris Rolfe leads their scoring with nine. Jaro Arrieta has five. And old friend of the team, Fabian Espindola, is tied with Perry Kitchen in third for three. Uh, D.C. is averaging just .6 goals per game on the road and conceding one a game on the road. The Red Bulls are doing 1.7 goals four at home and .7 conceded. So uh, statistically, certainly the balance is in favor of the home side. But D.C. has pulled out a lot of tight results. I think uh, most people will remember that win over Montreal where they only needed one shot for one goal. And Montreal, I think, hit 20 or 30 shots at them. And somehow they held on for a one nothing win. Um, one other important thing to note... Uh, Injury-wise, Bill Hamid has been kind of a a missing role player this year. He's missed five of their last seven games due to some sort of injury, which is officially listed on the league's injury sheet as undisclosed injury. Um, And that includes the last game against San Jose. Andrew Dykstra has been filling in. So there's 
a lot on the line here potentially for taking control of the Eastern Conference and possibly the Shield race, although there's a lot going on in the West as well. What do you make of DC's recent form, Dave? Uh, it's, it's tough because they've been so solid for the majority of the year, and they've been in a little bit of a poor form uh, as of late, but they're still a very dangerous team. They're very... They're, they don't do anything too spectacularly well, but they're just very solid in, in every facet of the game. And I think that's what makes them very dangerous. They can play in a lot of different ways. And, you know, they get a lot of knocks, you know, say Ben Olsen's having them play a very boring brand of soccer. But the Red Bulls played a pretty boring brand of soccer in 2013 under Petke, and that got them the shield. So uh, you can't really argue with the results. If they're, if it's working, you've got to stick with it. So I think this is, you know, this is the definition of a six-pointer, a, a game that the Red Bulls really need to have at home. They, yes, they still have those games in hand, but uh, if they're looking to really stay in the thick of the shield race, this is a game they need to, to take the three points from, especially at home where they've been working on making it that fortress again. So a huge game, a big rivalry game, and you can be sure they'll be up for it. Definitely, and I, I think one other thing that's worth noting is DC has not changed pieces all that much uh, from when the Red Bulls last faced them. They have added... Alvaro Saborio from RSL, uh, who has been in and out of the lineup with his own injuries. But th- this is largely the same team. So the Red Bulls, on the other hand, you know, did, were able to add a couple of pieces in the midfield uh, during the window. So it's, it's not like this is a completely refreshed team like, say, L.A. might be right now, having added Gerard and Dos Santos. So with all that said, a prediction, sir? Predictions are tough. Usually don't end too well, but... I'll give this one 2-1 to New York. I just think coming back home, uh, they were flat-footed in Chicago. There, there will be no chance that that will happen against D.C. at home with the opportunity they have in front of them to, uh, to make up some ground in the East. Uh, I think they'll get it done. I think you'll see uh, Bradley Wright Phillips, and I think you'll see uh, Gonzalo Verón go as well. All right. I'm gonna, I was going to go 2-1, but uh, since I don't want to repeat anything, I'm going to go 2-2. Two, two. Um, I think D.C. will be a little bit more up for this than they were the last time they came to Harrison. I think, uh, you know, Benny may have them playing Benny ball, but I think he can get them fired up for this particular game. And I, I think it'll be entertaining to watch. But, um, you know, they're, they're, it, it's feeling like a draw to me at this point. So we will see. Uh, in other news, Carl Uemet has been called up for a third-round World Cup qualifier uh, for Canada against Belize. Uh, he's expected to leave after the D.C. game and would not be back until after September 9th because for the third round of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, it's actually home and away. Uh, You've got to get through that before you get to the uh, group stage, and you've got to get through the group stage before you get to the hex. Um, but the Red Bulls don't have any games in that window. I think the league may actually be partially observing the FIFA window for once, which is astonishing. Um, Dave, is this a big loss given that you've got Miazga and Perinel and Zubar? Uh, on the back line available? Well, Zubar coming back definitely cushions that blow a little bit, but I think it it, it does hurt to lose a piece like we met because I think he has done a very admirable job as you know third, fourth choice center back, where you know he's been called upon pretty often considering the injuries to Zubar. Matt Miazga going to the, to the U twenty World Cup. Paranel seems to be suspended you know every few weeks with his yellow card accumulation. So every time he's been called upon, he's stepped in pretty admirably. So. Not having that cushion in the back may force you know, someone like Roy Miller, who hasn't even been called up to the 18 in recent weeks, and he might be your emergency center back. So uh, you know, good for him to get some more international experience under his belt at such a young age, uh, but he might be a piece that the Red Bulls could miss off the bench. Indeed. Hopefully it won't give him an injury during those friendlies, and, or not friendlies, but the qualifiers, 
and uh, he'll be back and ready to go for the, the following game, which is, in fact, on the 11th against Chicago. Um, go figure. Uh, and before we go to break, uh, I'm sure many of our listeners are aware because they would have gotten an email from the club, but there's going to be another town hall. I can't wait. It'll be uh, next Wednesday night. I'm pretty sure the tickets are gone by now. If you didn't get them, uh, not sure there's any way to transfer them. Uh, Dave, what do you think the tone's going to be like compared to the first town hall? Because uh, it was a little heated last time. Well, Mark, something tells me this might be a little bit different than the first time in January. But, uh, you know, I don't think you'll be having as many calls for uh, why did you fire Petke, uh, considering how well Jesse Marsh has done. I mean, I think, not to say, I think it would be a far cry to say that he's made people forget about Mike Petke because that honestly just never happened. But when you come in and have as good of a start as the Red Bulls had, I believe they were unbeaten in their first seven. And given the fact that they're second in the East with, you know, one of the lowest payrolls in MLS, most of Ali Curtis's moves have worked out. You look at bringing in Mike Grella, you look at bringing in Kamar Lawrence, bringing back Damian Perrinell, all of these signings have really panned out. And there's really hasn't been too much to complain in Red Bull land, save for, you know, a tough loss in Chicago to, you know, the worst team in the East. So, you know, going into that town hall, you'd like to see them win this game against DC. But uh, the body of work over, you know, the first three quarters of the season, it's been mostly positive for New York. And that's been a very stark change from what we were looking at in January. Yeah, the body of work has definitely been good, but this is a team where the fan base lives or dies on the last few results. So, um, you know, if it's an ugly result against DC at home and, you know, the shield is looking more and more out of reach and they're, they're going to have Toronto nipping at their heels soon on points, um, you know, it, it may get a little contentious just for the sake of being contentious, but we'll see. Hopefully not. Play nice, everybody. When we're back on Seeing Red, Pablo Maurer joins us. Uh, we'll talk DC and uh, see what he's got to say. It's Seeing Red on Backheel.com. You're listening to Seeing Red with Mark Fishkin, Dave Martinez, and Dan Dickinson. Seeing Red, the New York Soccer Roundup, Mark Fishkin, Dave Martinez. Back in segment two, and that's where we bring in the guest. Tonight on the show, making his third or fourth appearance, I can't remember, uh, it's DC United beat writer and DC uh, reporter and general photography guy, all-around good guy, Pablo Maurer. Pablo, how are you tonight? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Doing okay. Doing okay. Looking forward to Sunday. So, speaking of Sunday, um, DC has been interesting lately. Uh, tell us what, <laughs> what's been going on with the club. That's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, I think obviously DC stretched out a big lead atop the East, but uh, their form in the past several weeks has definitely been concerning. Um, you know, I think you look, they, you know, in their past three league games, they gave up a goal inside of four minutes. Um, and in the larger picture, you know, they, they've given up a lot of early goals this year that I think they gave up nine in the opening 15 across the course of the whole year, which is good for worse than MLS. Um, even, you know, uh, they, they've also given up a handful of goals in the opening five minutes of the second half. So, um, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of frustration right now amongst players and coaches uh, about conceding those early goals. I mean, they've gotten pretty lucky over the course of the year, or you know, however you want to put it, and that a lot, they've been able to wash a lot of those goals away and still 
accumulate a lot of points. But um, you know, all year they've been saying, "Oh, you know, we're going to this is going to bite us in the ass eventually." And you know, uh, now recently it started to bite them in the ass. So um, yeah, it's uh, certainly I think you could say the cracks are starting to show in DC. So um, Sunday, I mean, huge matchup obviously for both teams. I you know I. I'm almost uh, almost disappointed the Red Bulls lost to Chicago because that really would have raised the stakes to the point where uh, New York could have you know leapfrogged DC with a win on Sunday. But yeah, it should be interesting. Pablo, can you talk to us about the DC attack? They've got a couple interesting pieces up there, a couple familiar faces with Fabian Espindola, Alvaro Saborio, and Chris Rolf is leading the way. Just what can we expect from the United attack? Well, but you're not going to see Espindola um, because he's hurt. As far as uh, you know, Rolf is, uh, Rolf is, and this is just my opinion, Rolf is DC's most important player, has been all year. Um, he's one of the only players on that team who possesses any sort of creativity in the final third. Um, incredibly classy on the ball, you know, plays well at wide, plays well at top, um, combines well with his teammates. Uh, Saborio has been kind of a mixed bag. I mean, uh, you know, he's a guy that, that they certainly needed, especially with the absence of EJ all year, you know, they've been missing kind of a target guy and, um, Saborio certainly fills that role, you know, um, but he has been erratic, you know, he got off to a strong start with the team and then, um, you know, in, in United's last game against San Jose, <clears throat> he missed a pair of sitters, including, and, and I mean, it was just a absolutely wide open header from seven yards out. And if that's, if there's any kind of service you'd think that he would sort of, you know, uh, do well with, it's a, it's an open header uh, in that area of the field, you know, um, I think through midfield also, um, you know, DC all year, you just sort of never know what you're going to get. You know, um, you got players like Nick DeLeon, Chris Pontius is coming back from injury. Um, you know, Dave Yarnow, Perry Kitchen, they're all, they're all players that, uh, you know, on some days they look like, you know, Perry Kitchen, particularly this year, some days he's looked like U.S. national team material, and other days he's looked pretty poor. Um, uh, Nick DeLeon, another, you know, uh, almost maddeningly inconsistent because he had such an incredible rookie year uh, when he came into the league in 2012, and um, I think he's been struggling to recapture that ever since, and he's had flashes of that form this year, but, you know, there are other games where he's literally invisible, you know, so... Um, it, it's tough to tell you anything about the United attack because you really just don't know what team you're getting on any given day. I mean, bear in mind, this is a team that just, what, two, three games ago, won, won a game with one shot. And they were outshot 24 to one, you know? So uh, some days, <laughs> you know, and then a week earlier had scored six goals, you know? So um really just depends who shows up. I'm not sure what to tell you. <laughs> It's a tough question. So moving to the back line, you know, the, I think the story as of late has been injuries. You've got Chris Korb, who uh, went out with that ACL injury, and you've got Bill Hamid, who is in and out, and I know he has some surgery. So what, what's going on with the back and the, I don't want to call it an injury crisis, but it's feeling a little bit like one. So certainly uh, they've lost Chris Korb for the year to a ACL injury, and that, uh, you know, that's, he's not a, a name player, but uh, that's actually kind of a huge loss for them. He'd looked solid defensively and had really added, um, uh, you know, an, an offensive element overlapping and stuff all year. Um, you've got, you know, and uh, at center back, you've got uh, Steve Birnbaum and Bobby Boswell. Now, 
Birnbaum, as of late, um, I think, you know, maybe maybe in risk of losing his starting spot. I think uh, Benny in this Champions League game on Thursday uh, played Marcus Halsey at center back. And I was talking to, you know, a couple colleagues in the press box and we sort of came to the con- consensus that it might even be an audition. You know, um, Birnbaum started the year on the U.S. national team. Uh, but again, it's just been maddeningly madding madden somebody say it somebody say the word for me maddeningly madding there it is you got it (laughs) (laughs) yay erratic um uh you know next to him bobby boswell you're you're looking at a player who historically i mean i'd i'd put him in the top 10 center backs in the history of the league honestly um consistency wise certainly but um, he's a guy who in the past three or four years has played more minutes in MLS than anybody. Uh, you know, there was a year with Houston where I think he played every single minute that they played. Um, and I think that wear and tear might be starting to show a little bit. He's looked, uh, looked off a step in certain games, um, mentally switched off a little bit in certain games. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's concerning. Um, at you know, and on the other end of the the line, you have Taylor Kemp, who there's very little to be worried about. Uh, he's done well all year. You know, I think he has no exaggeration. One of the best left feet in MLS, um, which is crazy to say about a player like Taylor Kemp. You know, but uh, <laughs> at goalkeeper, I mean, yeah, Hamid's still out. You're going to see Andrew Dykstra again. Um, Dykstra is a is your sort of standard run of the mill MLS backup keeper. Um, certainly, you know, doesn't make any kind of insane errors, but also, uh, you know, there've been a couple games where, you know, we looked at, especially the opening goals that United allowed these early goals, you know, a few of them, you look at them and, and you think to yourself, well, it's not Andrew's fault, but on the other hand, you think to yourself, well, Bill might've gotten one or two of those, you know? So, um, certainly I'm, I, I think DC are right for the picking, honestly. Um, you know, New York, uh, New York have looked good, you know, cons- pretty consistent over the past month and um you know this is a huge chance for them to to you know crawl even closer to the uh, conference lead not that it really means anything um but you know uh i guess maybe a ccl spot you know <laughs> whatever. and we can't forget that atlantic cup i mean it means so oh, much yeah. i'm sorry that's right the atlantic <laughs> cup yeah yeah last time i saw the atlantic cup was uh in the dc united locker room and it was um it was holding a door open it was like holding the door open to the showering area or something like that. This was maybe uh, in 2013. Good, 2014. good use for it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, but, but I'm sorry. What I meant to say was this is MLS's oldest rivalry, and they'll be drinking champagne out of that cup. You know? <laughs> yes, much, much respect to the Atlantic Cup. But you touched on a little bit uh, with Bill Hamid, how you know, fan favorite in New York with uh, all the history he has. But <laughs> injuries have been, have been a big problem for him this year. He's been in and out of the lineup. Can you just shed some light on what what's his deal and maybe how does that affect him going forward? Because a lot of people are projecting that maybe this could be his final year in DC with with Europe calling. Yeah, you know, I'm of the opinion. Um, I uh, I had a couple conversations with people familiar with Bill's situation um, earlier in the year, uh, right after the Gold Cup, and um, there was some frustration from Bill about the time of the injury because. Um, apparently Bill was set to be called into that gold cup roster and, uh, and, you know, the club essentially called the national, you know, called, uh, us soccer and told them that he wouldn't be able to go, um, because of all those injuries he'd accumulated. Uh, I also talked to, you know, another person familiar with, uh, you know, the inner workings of Bill Hamid who told me that, 
he thinks that honestly, if Bill had had a healthy year that he might've moved in the summer, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the timing of this is awful for him, especially given as, you know, he, he was sort of just thrusting himself into the U S national team picture firmly. And, uh, um, it's unfortunate for him. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think the concern for those of us who cover DC on a daily basis is, you know, obviously different MLS teams, uh, are, are more open than, than others with injury information. DC United is the opposite of that. Um, you know, so it is, it is sort of tough to know what to make of it. Uh, you know, when weekend week out, you hear, Oh, he's got a knock. Oh, he's got a knock, you know, a finger, hip, leg, this, that, or the other thing. And then all of a sudden it's, he's out for, you know, eight, eight, six to eight weeks or something like that. You know, so it's tough to tell with Bill. I mean, I think that my gut feeling is maybe that he was rushed back a little bit, you know, and, uh, and that this now is the, the sort of, you know, they're going to sit him down for a month or two and, and, uh, you know, see if he can recover fully or something like that, you know, just difficult to know what to make of the situation. Definitely. Paula, we were just joking about the Atlantic cup and that, that's sort of a nice segue into a sort of burning question that that's been lingering this year with everything else that's been going on in this market and everything going on with the league, which is, do you get the sense that this rivalry has is starting to cool down a little bit? You know, I, when I go to the games, I notice the the DC fans don't travel as much, or they certainly didn't for the opener this year. Um, you know, I, I, it hasn't felt as fiery. Obviously, the playoff series last year um, w- was a bit heated, but just uh, do you think it's taking a backseat to other developing rivalries? Listen, uh, you know, let's be realistic about this. I. I genuinely think there may be three, four rivalries that mean anything in MLS anymore. Um, obviously, Casc- I mean, just let's do all of Cascadia as one. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think LA, San Jose, still you see massive crowds for that and people get up for that. Um, you know, maybe Toronto, Montreal. Um, but, you know, it's I, I've been to all the, uh, well, I, I went to two of the three Red Bulls NYCFC games this year, right? And uh, both the ones at Red Bull Arena. And my feeling instantly from those two games was that that uh, that, that rivalry is more relevant than the Atlantic Cup. I mean, I, I think rivalries in MLS, you know, you have um, two types of rivalries. You have ones that are, his, you know, historical, like D.C. and uh, New York. And then you have these sort of narrative-based ones, like NYCFC and, and, and Red Bull. Um and I think, like you said, some of these older rivalries are pretty still. I mean, I just don't think, you know, if you talk to the players, obviously, they're going to say, yeah, we still get up for these games and get up for more. But, you know, I think to the fans, I, I don't know really how, how much of a sizzler this is. You know what I mean? I, aside from a chance for, from a few to say things like DC scum and the pink cows and blah, blah, blah. You know, I just, I, I agree with you. I have to agree with you. I just don't think it, you know, it, it, it is what it's been in the past few years. I mean, it's going to take, you know, you saw a spark of it in, in 2012, you know, that crazy snow, de- snow debacle, you know. Snow, but Snowmageddon game. Snowmageddon, yep. exactly. Um, but, you know, since then, there's definitely been a cooling. I mean, I just think that, I just think the league has these other rivalries that are so much, you know, I cover the team, Dan, you cover the team, and I'm, I, even, even I would admit, I, I get almost more up for watching you know, some of these other higher profile rivalries than I do covering an Atlantic cup game, you know? So 
Yeah, I definitely think there's something to be said for that. I mean, I, I think it's still a relevant rivalry, but I, I don't think you can compare it to Portland-Seattle or even NYCFC Red Bulls, you know. I mean, uh, now, one quick thing, you know, if, if the Red Bulls keep winning every single game in that rivalry, I do actually think that, that you know, whatever you want to call it, Hudson River Derby will become pretty irrelevant pretty quickly, you know, but um, but – as of right now, I mean, I don't, I don't think the Atlantic Cup touches a bunch of different rivalries in MLS. Well, perhaps one thing that might reinvigorate that rivalry would be a change of scenery. And as much as we love the crumbling concrete and the cuddly raccoons that we so often find at RFK, it looks like DC might actually be moving on to bigger and better things uh, in a new stadium. So can you give us the latest on that situation? The latest, uh, now it is pretty much a done deal. Uh, it wasn't for a while, uh, you know, I think the... Uh, DC city government have been dragging their their feet on uh, acquiring a lot of the land for the uh, stadium and trying to avoid using eminent eminent domain for some of that land. But um, you know, uh, sort of at the last minute, uh, Loudoun County, which is a sort of exurban part of DC, you know, maybe thirty thirty miles from a city, made a play uh, to the team, and uh, you know that that news leaked that that, that after all this, uh, you know all these negotiations with the, with uh, the district of Columbia that the team was now considering move, moving to Virginia. And I mean, within two weeks, um, you know, so much of the red tape was cut. So, uh, you know, I think the team had said, you know, that they'll move in sometime in 2017. Uh, that's not a realistic goal. That's never been a realistic goal. In fact, I had conversations with people, uh, you know, familiar with the deal the day that it passed the council, um, you know, last winter and, they all told me that, you know, it's going to be a probably opening day 2018 thing. So <clears throat> we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, RFK is RFK is worse than ever, let me tell you. I could really go on about it, but I but I won't. I mean, the, the wasps in the press box and the uh, just the crumbling I, concrete and the I mean, I can't even, you know, I, I my colleague Thomas, my podcast mate on Open Wipers and Soccer, he sends me a text the other day from RFK. It says that. They had like the entire visitors, uh, you know, the, the tunnel the visiting team walks through to get out the field. It was raining hard, and they had the whole thing cordoned off and smelled like raw sewage. Oh, like these are <laughs> the things that we deal with at RFK Stadium, right? You know, like uh, I'm also pretty sure the place is haunted at this point, but that's a whole different story that I'm not going to get into. So, you know, I, I don't know, man. Yeah. I, I look forward to abandon RFK in the future. Pablo Mauer can be read nearly every day on MLSsoccer.com, heard on Open Wide for some soccer on this very podcast network, and his photojournalism can be found on DCist.com, which you should really check out. Pablo, as always, thanks for coming by. My pleasure, man. Your emails after this on Seeing Red. You're listening to Seeing Red with Mark Fishkin, Dave Martinez, and Dan Dickinson. Seeing Red, the New York Soccer Roundup, Mark Fishkin, Dave Martinez, segment three, it's all about you. We always want to hear from you. You can send us an email at seeingredny at gmail.com, or you can call us on the miracle of the telephone, 973-602-9161. Leave us a voicemail. We'll play it back. Your voice will go over the air to all of our listeners. What could be better? But if you send us an email, as five of you did, you just have to listen to me read it. So start with James Sullivan. Hey, guys. With all the talk over the last few weeks about young Matt Miazga's steadily rising stock, how would each of you feel if Red Bulls made the ultimate investment in him and re-signed him to a big money deal, even a potential designated player contract? 
Would it be a complete waste? Or could he be worth the long-term commitment? He does fit the mold of the type of DP that the team is after. Thank you for the weekly shows. I've been a longtime fan and always wait with anticipation for who the guest will be every week. James from Long Island. So, Dave, what do you think? Uh, young Matt Miazga, stock's certainly on the rise. I know friend of the show, Matt Doyle, has spoken about how he's, you know, should be getting called up for the U.S. men's senior team soon. But is he worth a DP contract? Yeah, I actually saw a pretty good article on MLSsoccer.com talking about the rise of Matt Miazga recently. And it really has been pretty meteoric how quickly he's, he's come along this season. Uh, in terms of a DP contract, uh, at, at just 20 years old, it might be a bit premature to be talking about DPs. But if that's what it takes to lock him down, I think it's a wise investment for New York considering just how quickly he's come along and how crucial I think he will be to this New York defense. You could see something along the lines of an Omar Gonzalez where uh, you lock him up, where you know he's been garnering a bit of interest from Europe. You, you have him stay at home. Uh, you give him the DP contract and see where that pans out because I think we've seen the cautionary tale of uh, you know defenders in particular or anyone really going overseas a bit too quickly. You look at you look at you know DeAndre Edlin is the most recent example of going to Tottenham and sitting on the bench and it really does no good to their career. So uh, keeping him at home where he can. Uh, get consistent minutes, be that rock in the center of the defense, I think would do him wonders. I, I think that article by uh, show co-host Eric Giacometti is definitely worth reading. I, you know, I think the, um, the interesting thing with Miazga is that because he falls under the young DP threshold, because remember the league offers you a lesser cap hit if you sign a DP under 23, um, which I don't believe the Red Bulls have ever done, um, you know, there, there might be some shenanigans you could pull with that cap leverage and the the sweet sweet Tam, um, and and move him into a DP role while keeping the third DP slot open, um, because I think you know with the signing of Verone, I think it's clear that this team is looking for pieces that they can add, um, and keeping that slot open might be good, especially in the next window. But um, you know, I think I think Miazga certainly put on a performance this year that leaves him worth getting paid. You know, I, I don't think anybody can argue that. Kevin Daniels writes in, Hey Mark, is it me or does Shep Messing come across as anti-Red Bulls every match until we score a goal? Well, away matches, I have season tickets. Shep Messing anti-Red Bulls. You know, um, I, I've gotten a chance to talk to Shep a little bit this year, and um, I can safely say he's not. I think what Shep is, outside of uh, a delight, is, you know, Somebody who's going to call the game honestly. If he sees a foul, you know, even if it's for the team that, that he's ostensibly calling the game for, he's going to call it a foul. And if somebody's playing like garbage, he's going to call it out. Um, he gets very excited about nice goals, but so do lots of other people. So I, I can't say I would call Shep anti-Red Bulls, uh, even, even pre-goal. Um, he just, you know, if the team's not scoring, then... They're probably not doing something right because it's very hard to win a game without scoring any goals. What do you think, Dev? Yeah, I think I agree with you, Mark. I think Shep in particular gets a lot of flack from uh, certain sects of Red Bulls fans, but I think Red Bulls fans in general have it pretty good considering that commentating team of Steve Cangelosi, Shep Messing. Uh, I think I'd take them over you know, a, a wide majority of commentating teams in MLS. And you know, Shep, he, he can be a little flamboyant, a little over the top at times, but uh, I, I think that's kind of a, a fun characteristic to have to listen to someone who's very into the game. I mean, he's played the game. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, he might over-exaggerate at times or 
you know, be a little hard on his, on some of the Red Bulls players. But I think, uh, you know, in my opinion, I'd rather have someone that's, you know, calling the game honestly and as it is, as opposed to someone who's biased and, you know, not really going to call out his players. Uh, so if he goes over the line a little bit, maybe it's just to dispel that notion that he's a homer. But uh, overall, I think, you know, Red Bulls fans have it pretty good. Yeah, and Chet does take a certain level of crap from not just Red Bull fans, but from all fans around the league. But, you know, anybody who's got a distinctive voice and is going to drop some catchphrases every game is, is probably going to take some, some abuse on social media. Uh, Anthony Russo writes, Absolutely horrified at MLS idea of not allowing that goal off of the corner set piece. Presumably the, the Chicago one last night. That type of play happens consistently in leagues around the world. EPL, MLS says stuff like that. Uh, it makes our league and the refs look like a joke. I'm no Eurosnob, I swear. It would have been nice to get that win in Chicago, but oh well. Two more to go. Red Bull's playing a great season, and my dream is the cup this year. We can do this. Forza Metro. P.S. Rutz Hut was a terrible choice last night. Mr. Anthony Russo. Um, You know, we talked about this a little bit in segment one with the league interjecting, in a way, um, into the broadcast about that goal. Uh, I'm not sure I've seen... uh, fake-out touch corner kicks allowed in the EPL, but, you know, a certain degree of trigger... Do you think that there's there's something to be said for allowing uh, creative treatments of the rules and, and trying to sneak something in like that? Yeah, I'll be honest. I hadn't seen a goal scored like that uh, other than LIJSL games uh, at the youth level, so definitely surprising to see that crop up uh, in an MLS game, but I think it was it was a very interesting implementation, and you know what? Whether it was the the right implementation of the rule, whether the reps missed it, they got away with it, and and it bared fruit. So, uh, if you're Red Bulls fans, you, you take what you can get in that regard because they worked it perfectly, and it seemed like like I said in the first segment, they mentioned it to the assistant ref, uh, they knew what was going on there. So, uh, in terms of the way they went about it, it was just about as perfectly as you can do it, making sure that letting you know, hey, we're going to be playing a short corner, a little trickeration. Uh, you know, don't don't whistle this one back because we're about to dribble it in. So uh, I think the problem there was, as we said, that Lloyd Sam touched it maybe three or four times. So that, that could cause some issues. But, you know, I, I applaud the effort. I applaud the creativity that led to that goal. Yeah, and if you go back and watch the Red Bulls over this year, there's generally one or two set pieces a game where they try something that is, is clearly something they've worked during training. Uh, you know, short crazy free kicks that, that, you know, divert. I think there was one where Bradley peeled off the wall or Lloyd Sam and, and tapped one in. Um, you know, the, the, it, it's become a little bit of a trademark, and it's, it's fun to watch. Uh, Daniel Petrofessa from Manhattan writes, First off, thank you for asking. I assume that was in response to the tweet, asking for thoughts on NYDC. My thoughts on NYDC. I am over the hate. I can't cheer for hate. To me, it is about cheering for the team that you love. Cheers, Daniel. Dave, do you think that the um, the DC hate week takes it too far? Is it is it too much to be about hating the other club and not loving your own? Oh, I'm not sure. I feel like that's more of a personal preference. I mean, I know even in sex of my own friends and family that some people enjoy the shine and proud of their big rival losing more than they enjoy their own team winning. So I feel like that's more of a personal preference as to uh, whether you revel in the sorrow of... Uh, of your opposing teams, or if you really just enjoy a good victory at the hands of your own team, uh, you know, as as we talked about, is you know, is the you know the hate dying down a little bit in terms of New York DC? 
I think maybe it has. If you look at uh, the fan base in general, who's holding tight to that DC rivalry and a DC hate week, it's those 96ers. It's it's those guys that have been there since day one when, you know, those DC Metro Stars games were the end-all be-all, were the biggest rivalry in MLS. And they would like to preserve that, and they still very much feel that United is their biggest rival. But if you look at, on the whole, look at the way that the NYCFC games have played out, even Philly, the way that they've come in and given the Red Bulls problems, those, to me, seem to have a more of a rivalry feel than the DC games. Yes, we had uh, 2014, that playoff series was intense, had its moments. Uh, But in terms of the way that this rivalry is shifting, I feel like some of the hate is maybe uh, not as organically generated anymore. Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, last email from John Kleinchester. Hey now, gents. Love the show. Please keep up the good work. Please! Here's my question. With the loss of Chicago, is it time to start worrying? If not, if the Red Bulls can't manage to conquer the D.C. scum, then is it time to start worrying? I really just want to know when I should start worrying, because much like the rest of the fan base, I was just starting to feel comfortable. And that, in itself, is worrying. Love, John. Well... You know, I'm not sure there's ever a time to stop worrying um, with this club. I think uh, many people have made a career, a fan fan career out of staying in a worried state. But do you you think that the the 3-2 loss and the the poor performance last night is worth actual concern about? Yeah, I think that's one of the funny things about this franchise and this fan base is that fans are constantly just waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for the next disaster to crop up. Uh, But... I think that taking this 3-2 loss against Chicago for anything more than face value is a mistake. I mean, look at 2013 when they won the Shield. They lost a, a pretty bad game against Chivas on the road and went on to, to you know to win the Shield. So to overreact and say that, you know, this is – it was a bad loss. I'm, I'm not going to say that it wasn't. But take it as just a three points drop. They still have the games in hand. Is it time to panic? No, this team is still playing well. Uh, they've they've added only you know beneficial pieces to this roster and give them time to pan out and in, in all honesty Jesse Marsh hasn't done anything to to not, you know not earn the faith of the Red Bulls supporters because it seems like he's made every single move you know properly and he, it's they've all panned out so far so now is not the time to panic especially with those games in hand they've got ten to go they're in a good standing they're in no real don't want to jinx it but they're in no real danger of missing the playoffs. So in terms of where they're standing right now, not too much to complain about. No, definitely not. And, and looking back at 2013, that loss to Chivas was a 3-2 road loss. And the next game was a 2-1 win at home over DC United. Hmm. Hmm. This Sunday's match at Harrison kicks off, I believe, at 7 o'clock. Uh, Dave calls it a 2-1 win for the Red Bulls. I call it a 2-2 draw uh, for Dave Martinez, Mark Fishkin, for Dan Dickinson and Eric Giacometti, who are on assignment tonight, we say good night, everybody. This has been Seeing Red, the New York Soccer Roundup on Backheel.com. Listen anytime on iTunes, Stitcher, and SeeingRedNY.com.